Good morning, fellowship. Would you stand with us and let's worship the Lord our God together this morning. Let's proclaim his name and let's pray that he would be magnified in our lives as we see. Were creation suddenly articulate with a thousand tongues to lift one cry then from north to south and east to west we'd hear Christ be magnified were the
seated. Good morning, fellowship family. Hey, my name is Jimmy. I'm part of the Rogers community team here in Rogers, and I just want to welcome you to today's worship service. If you're new, thanks for being here today. Hey, we want to meet you. There's a couple ways we can connect. You can follow the QR code on the screen, but it'd be even better if we could meet you in person at the center booth in the foyer, and we'll get you plugged in. Thanks for being here today. Hey, fellowship men, Proverbs 27, 17 says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And I believe that in order to become the men that God has called us to be in our homes, in our community, in our churches, and everywhere we work and play, we need other men to, shop, to sharpen, to encourage, and to, to challenge one another. And so this week, we begin a new study, an eight-week study, both in Springdale and in Rogers, uh, on biblical manhood. And so in Springdale at the 412 Annex on Tuesday morning, 6.30 to 7.30 a.m., uh, Springdale men will gather at that annex. And here on Wednesday mornings from 6.30 to 7.30 a.m., we're gonna gather right here in the lodge to study what it means to be a man after God's own heart. And if you're not sure about it, just come the first week for the coffee and the Casey's pizza and, and we'll go from there. Hey, um, Next week, you need to mark your calendars. Those of you uh, who are from Bentonville, we have a Bentonville community worship service at Orchards Park at 10 a.m. And last service, Mark was sitting here in the front row and he guaranteed 68 degrees, there you are, and beautiful sunny day. It's gonna be a good day of worship. Hey, um, mark your calendars for October the 10th. Uh, there is a senior adults ministry gathering called Fellowship Legacy across the hall in the Family Center. That's gonna be a meet and greet and some vision sharing as well, so you don't wanna miss that. Hey, Fellowship, we are a church who believes in the sanctity of human life. And one way in which we demonstrate that, because it's not simply in word, but also in deed, we demonstrate that by partnering with a ministry called Loving Choices. And every year at this time, they do a baby bottle campaign where we fill up an empty baby bottle with loose change and cash, and silver and gold, and if you can fit Bitcoin in there, I'm pretty sure they take Bitcoin. Um, and then Loving Choices will use that, those funds to help minister to the spiritual and physical needs of those facing an unplanned pregnancy. And so you can, you can get your baby bottle out there in the foyer, but we need to have those baby bottles back by October the 10th. And so grab that and return it. And uh, lastly, uh, you may have noticed that I am a walking billboard today for a ministry called Reengage, and that's our marriage enrichment ministry. And many of you may be aware that we offer this experience at Fellowship, but what I want to emphasize this morning, and any chance I get a microphone, is that there are multiple on-ramps to experiencing Reengage. You can join at any time. Previously, we used to offer it twice a year, but now you can show up any Sunday at 4.30 and begin your re-engaged journey. So pop quiz time. Russell, I quizzed you last and you got a perfect score. Ruben, so if you and Haley wanted to join re-engage, say two weeks from now, could you do that? Yes. Oh man, way to go, you get a breath mint. Way to go, way to go, good job. All right, Aaron Summerhill, if you and Phoebe wanted to join re-engage four weeks from now, could you do that? <laughs> That's right, you definitely get a breath mint. Um, hey. Reengage is meant to meet you in whatever season you're at in your marriage to help reignite and resurrect 
just to help you take that next step towards oneness with your spouse. And there are very few Sundays throughout the year we don't meet, uh, holidays and then the heart of the summer. And so I, I hope you'll come even today. Some of our best friends in the whole world are here uh, to share at Reengage, Bub and Mandy Thomas, and I hope that you'll come today. Hey, fellowship family, let's bow and pray as we continue our worship time together. Father God, well, we love you, and we're here because of you. We wanna respond to your goodness, Lord, you've been faithful to us. But we receive your mercy. We come to your throne because of what you've done, the way that you have made. We wanna have a singular focus this morning with our eyes completely fixed on you. And so help us to continue to worship in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Fellowship, would you stand with us once again? Let's continue to worship as we celebrate a mighty God and sing of his greatness together.
what joy shall we look forward to this day we see then i shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim my god God's goodness this morning, and now let's lift up His faithfulness. Great is Thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. Great is Thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever we see. Great is thy faithfulness. Great
Last week, John Barclay stood up here and asked the question, what does it mean to hold fast to faith with a good conscience? And he kind of teased us and said, well, the book of 1 Timothy is going to answer that question for us. And he said, this week, we're going to talk on prayer and praise and devotion to God. And so this morning, I wanted to share a quote with you that rocked my world a few years ago. And it's a quote from uh, Eugene Peterson's book, Run With The Horses. And the title of this section is called The Intimacy of Prayer. So I'm going to warn you, it's a little long, but I want to urge you to lean in and listen. Because there's two parts of this quote, and you may find yourself on one side needing a little bit of encouragement, or you may find yourself on the other feeling some conviction. So it starts with this. Nearly everyone believes in God and throws casual offhand remarks in his general direction from time to time. But prayer is something quite different. Suppose yourself at dinner with a person whom you very much want to be with, a friend, a lover, a person important to you. The dinner is in a fine restaurant where everything is arranged to give you a sense of privacy. There's adequate illumination at your table and everything else is in shadow. You are aware of other persons and other activity in the room, but they do not intrude on your intimacy. There is talking and listening. There are moments of silence full of meaning. From time to time, a waiter comes to your table. You ask questions of him. You place your order with him. You ask to have your glass refilled. You send the broccoli back because it arrived cold. You thank him for his attentive service and leave a tip. You depart, still in companionship with the person with whom you dined, but out on the street, the conversation is less personal, more casual. That is a picture of prayer. The person with whom we set aside time for intimacy, for this deepest and most personal conversation is God. At such times, the world is not banished, but it is in the shadows on the periphery. Prayer is never complete and unrelieved solitude. It is, though, carefully protected and skillfully supported intimacy. Prayer is the desire to listen to God firsthand, to speak to God firsthand, and then setting aside the time and making the arrangements to do it. It issues from the conviction that the living God is immensely important to me and that what goes on between us demands my exclusive attention. And if the quote were to end there, we'd have a beautiful picture of prayer. But it doesn't end. This next section was a little bit of a gut punch for me a few years ago. He says, but there is a parody of prayer that we engage in all too often. The details are the same, but with two differences. The person across the table is self and the waiter is God. This waiter God is essential but peripheral. You can't have the dinner without him, but he is not an intimate participant in it. He is someone to whom you give orders, make complaints, and maybe at the end give thanks. The person you are absorbed in is self. Your moods, your ideas, your interests, your satisfactions or lack of them. When you leave the restaurant, you forget about the waiter until the next time. If it is a place to which you go regularly, you might even remember his name. 
God, I just take a moment to confess the times when I've not practiced intimacy with you in the secret place. I thank you for men of the faith who bring conviction and your word that brings conviction. God, I pray that we would be a people marked by prayer, not just sharing our current needs or our moods or any of that, but God, that we would come to you with ears to listen. God, that we would have an intimate conversation with you, acknowledging that that is the abundant life that you have for us. So God, our prayer is that we would set you before us, that you would remind us that you are the goal, that you are the prize. God, that you are calling us to you, that your promises, we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. So may we take you up on your word this morning as we sing and as we pray. No peace besides you. 
God, would you open our eyes to see you this morning, high and lifted up. God, may we humble ourselves before your word. Would you help teach us to be a people of devotion and a people of prayer as we follow after you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. And you have seen the same things that we have seen in our lives. That the way a family functions tends to change a little bit over time, right? So when Lisa and I were first married, uh, our home was uh, pretty fluid. Structure was light. We ate dinner when we were hungry. We did chores when we felt like it. Uh, our spontaneity was pretty high because our demands were pretty low. And then we had our first child. And we had to start introducing a little more structure. And then by our eighth anniversary, we had four young children. And we introduced a lot more structure. And it had, no, had nothing to do with the fact that we loved rules. We actually loved survival. And there was this fear that the inmates would take over the asylum. <laughs> now, the key to keeping the family healthy, though, was to know the right rules to put in place, right? I mean... We didn't want so many rules that the place felt like a military school, but we needed something that gave some structure for health to thrive. Well, we're in this section of 1 Timothy chapter 2 that begins to kind of move in the same direction. It's going to be a section that starts on the house rules for the church family, the family of God. And the reason Paul introduces them is because the church family is growing and a little more structure is needed. Now, before we look at those house rules, we have to firmly have in our, our vision the foundation for this home, this spiritual family called the church. Because if you major on rules without understanding the foundation, that's anything but healthy. That's a frightening place to grow up. Last week, John Barclay called our attention to two critical passages, and I so appreciated his message and the way he weighted both of these verses. And he started us in 1 Timothy 1.15, and he said, uh, in fact, I'll read the whole verse to you. It says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. You know what that means? Paul is saying, here is something you can bank your life upon. Put everything on this. And what's the this? The rest of the verse says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And family, this is the foundation of our spiritual house, our spiritual lives. You can build your whole life on this. You can build your today and your tomorrow on this. You can build your now and your eternity on this. We trust in who God is and in what God does. It's all built on the fact that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I'm first in line, Paul says. And by the way, don't you want to fight yourself first in line to be at the front of knowing what Jesus has done for us? We see our need. Uh, to say it in one sentence, that verse could be summed up by saying, God saves sinners through his son, Jesus. That's the gospel. If that one sentence was too much to remember, could boil it down to one word, grace. The grace of God moving 
to us. That is the foundation of our life. So then you just have to ask, how do we build on a foundation? John took us to the next verse. He said was most critical in that text. That was verse 19, where it says, to do this, you must hold firmly to faith. And don't you see the relationship between our faith and God's grace? Let's never reverse the order. Grace is the foundation that we lay our faith upon. We don't flip that. God's grace is not dependent upon our level of faith. We trust in his immovable, unshakable, overflowing grace, who he is and what he's done. You see, faith in grace, that's not just how we get to heaven when we die one day. Faith in grace is actually how heaven gets into us while we live today, believing what God is doing now. And we build our spiritual life on that. If we build our spiritual life on any other foundation, our faith will be shaky at best. So the question I have is, how do we actually build our faith upon God's grace? And that's where Chapter one spills into chapter two and we begin to get that first house rule. Look at chapter two, verse one. First of all then, I urge the requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanks be offered on behalf of all people. So Paul ended chapter one, just the previous verse before this verse, uh, mentions those who shipwrecked their faith because they didn't put their faith on God's immovable grace. He mentions two people by name. He talks about Hymenaeus and Alexander, that they shipwrecked their faith. So it causes me to pause and say, Lord, how do I not wind up like Jaime and Alex? And he says, I'll tell you, first of all, meaning the most important thing on top of this, Pray. Pray is a priority, meaning that prayer is, is our first response, not our last resort. Prayer is communication with the triune God. Uh, because we actually believe we're living by faith in God's grace, we're constantly looking to communicate with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we communicate through prayer. Corey Tinboom was uh, in, from the Netherlands during World War II, hid Jews from the Nazis. And she, as later in life, began to write much about prayer and forgiveness. And she asked a penetrating question. She says, is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? That's a haunting question, isn't it? It's haunting because we know in our walk of faith, we've seen it flip between one or the other. You know, I've, I've known the Lord for 40 years, and of all of the spiritual disciplines that I've, I've sought to practice to continue to grow in my faith, I can tell you that prayer has been the weakest and it's been a frustration to me. For all of my Christian life, meditation and study of God's word has been this core foundation, and I'm so grateful for that. Wouldn't substitute it. But I've always believed that prayer was a steering wheel and not a spare tire, and yet I had fits and starts and fails and successes and 
a consistent, growing prayer life. He even added routines of fasting through seasons to intensify my prayer life, only to find that the steering wheel would move back to the spare tire again. About 10, maybe 12 years ago, I don't know exactly when, some things started to change in my prayer life. God began to kind of work in this desire I had to grow in an area that was a weak spot. And he brought some mentors and coaches in my life and then brought a few tools as well. I'll share some of those at the end of this message. But what we cannot miss is verse one, that Paul says, first of all, Chapter 2, verse 1, first of all, I urge that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanks be offered on behalf of all people. You know, the New Testament actually has seven words uh, that are used for prayer, seven Greek words. Paul chooses to use four of those in this one verse right here. And they describe different types of prayer that actually form our communication with this God that we trust and His grace. And he first of all says, the first kind is requests. Requests communicate here an urgent plea. Like back in Luke chapter 18, Jesus told a parable of a widow who was desperately day and night coming to this judge, asking for relief from the oppression she was experiencing. That's this word request. It has this sense of desperate need. And listen, men and women, You can't walk this planet without feeling those moments of desperately coming to God because something has pushed you to your knees. God says, first of all, bring those. But then he adds to that another word. He says prayers. And this word prayers is the most common one used in the New Testament, but it's also translated worship in many other places in the New Testament. Reminding us that Part of our language of prayer isn't just desperately bringing a need, but it's also worshiping God for who he is. And that's part of our prayer language. Third, he calls it intercessions. Intercessions is the common dialogue of life. This word is actually used in the Bible to talk about even the way two people talk to each other regularly. You and I would call this our regular requests before God. Sometimes we call this our prayer list. Have you ever run across someone who meets you and they say, thanks for telling me that. I'm going to put you on my prayer list. What they're saying is this is going to be the regular request that I'm periodically going to bring up to God on your behalf. And then fourth, he uses the word thanksgiving. And that one kind of goes without explanation, doesn't it? But it does remind us that gratitude is part of the language of prayer in daily life. Paul says, I want you to do this. I want you to pray all types of prayer for all types of people. Yes, I want you to bring your needs and your desperate requests before God, but at the same time, I want you to worship him for always being strong and always being good and always being wise, even in the hardest places. Yes, I want you to ask him to work on your behalf, but I want to make sure that you are thanking him for the work that he has done, is doing, and will do in this world. All of that frames the language of prayer. And Paul says, first of all, then, I urge all types of prayer for all types of people. First of all, telling me there's a priority. And yet in our culture, this kind of response is seen as passive, weak, 
So not long ago, a, a national leader posted on his Twitter feed after another mass shooting, thoughts and prayers go out to the people of Dayton, Ohio. The firestorm was quick after that. Responses to his tweets and headlines said, stop praying and let's do something. I found that very sad and a little bit maddening. And then a few months later, our elders called us to prayer, a concentrated season of prayer, before the 2020 election. And we had some from among our own body say, that's it? That's the best our spiritual leadership can do? Why don't we do something? And I found that very sad and a little bit maddening. Because Paul says, first of all, I urge, not I think it's just a good idea, but I urge you to pray all types of prayer for all types of people. Look at who we pray for and what we pray about in the next verse, verse 2. Pray even for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Such prayer for all is good and welcomed before God our Savior, since he wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So the purpose of our prayers is now highlighted, and the purpose is clearly gospel advancement. And that's why Paul actually tells us to pray for all of our leaders, our governing authorities. All governing authorities, he says, not just the governing authorities that we agree with or like. All authority. Notice when he says this. Remember when Paul is writing? He's writing in the 60s, the chaotic 60s, not the chaotic 1960s. The chaotic 60s A.D., and the king he's talking about is Emperor Nero. And if you've even had a high school history class, you know that Emperor Nero is famous in the Roman Empire for being crazy, chaotic, and cruel. And he took that crazy cruelness and he put it in the crosshairs of Christians. And they suffered real oppression and real persecution at grand scales. And they didn't call persecution just the culture not agreeing with us. Their definition of persecution is we're losing our lives and our livelihoods. And Paul says, pray for that government leader. Why pray for him? Well, he says clearly that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. In other words, pray that our leaders would govern in a way that would make life's road a little smoother for us. Why would Paul ask us to pray for smooth road? It's not because he's afraid of hardship. This man seemed to embrace hardship with a, a bravery that I find incredible. But he tells us why he wants us to pray that our government leaders would pave a smooth road of peace. The next line says, because God our Savior wants all peoples to be saved and to come to faith in him. You see, we know that the gospel grows deeply in persecution, don't we? We've seen that in China right now. We've seen that in countries like Iran. But we also know by experience that the gospel grows rapidly and broadly through times of peace. I spent a summer 
in the former Soviet Union in 1986. And, and I got to see the, the persecuted church grow deeply in their roots. And, and folks, it was a beautiful thing. But it did not grow broadly and swiftly. It was a painful time of persecution. We know that the gospel grows more swiftly and broadly in times of freedom and in countries of peace. And Paul says, pray for your leadership to move in that kind of way. Because God wants to see all people come to faith in his grace. Remember, faith in his grace. In fact, the late Warren Wearsby said it this way. We pray for all because Christ died for all and it is God's will for all to be saved. And you see on here, verse four captures God's generous heart toward all people. But that phrase, God wants all to be saved, means all people without distinction, not all people without exception. We cannot take this to mean that in the end, everyone will be saved, no. Would it be that that's true? But a response of faith is needed. What this does mean is that God wants all kinds of people to be saved. To Jews and Gentiles, to those we would consider the us's and those who we'd consider the them's. To the religious, to the irreligious, to your friend, to your enemy. To your loved one and maybe child in your own home, your neighbor next door, but also to the stranger across the globe. God has a heart for all to be saved. And he has moved heaven and earth to see that that happens. Look at the next verse and see his movement of his heart. For there is one God and one intermediary between God and humanity. Christ Jesus himself, human, who gave himself as a ransom for all, revealing God's purpose at his appointed time. And for this, this gospel of grace, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle. Listen, he says, I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. I'm a teacher of the Gentiles. It's almost as though he's saying, I'm a teacher, yes, even of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. And now all of a sudden, he doesn't just communicate this urgency of a priority of prayer, or he doesn't even communicate just the purpose of prayer, the gospel's advancement. Now he's talking about a focus of our prayers, that when we pray, we focus not so much just on the request that we're bringing to God, we actually focus on the Lord who is hearing that request. And sometimes I, I fear that we get so fixated on the request, the need that we're bringing before God, that we lose sight of who we pray to. And I think this might be one reason we experience so much anxiety about prayer as Christians. Have you ever experienced that kind of anxiety about your prayer life? You bring your request to God, maybe for your spouse to come to Christ or to come back to the family or for your work situation that is just failing and crumbling or for your child who you love so much but is living prodigal. And you're so focused in even in God's presence, on that request, that slowly, subtly, you are no longer praying. You're actually just worrying one more time 
but this time with religious words. And we shifted from prayer to an anxious worrying in a religious expression. Maybe your anxiety is different in prayer. Maybe your anxiety comes from whether or not you're praying correctly. You ask yourself all the time, am I praying enough? Am I praying long enough? Am I praying about enough things? Am I praying often enough? Maybe your anxiety is you're worried that God might be frustrated with you because once again, you seem to have a wandering mind during prayer. Or do you wonder and worry that he might be mad at you because once again, you've fallen asleep in prayer? Maybe your worry is different. You worry that you can't rally enough people to your prayer need. Now, you know that James has already said the effective prayer of one person accomplishes much. But you feel so burdened by a loved one who maybe just got a cancer diagnosis or a nation who has just made a decision that goes against your ethics and Christian expression. And the response is, we've got to rally the troops. I've got to get enough people on board with this prayer request. And then slowly, subtly, taking our petition before the Lord in prayer looks an awful lot like a petition drive to try to get enough signatures to present before the Lord of heaven and earth. Yeah, I fear that we are anxious prayers saying anxious prayers. And isn't that amazing? Because prayer is God's gift to a worried people living in a worrisome world. Remember, prayer is the language of how we hold on to faith in grace. Or to say it another way, prayer is the practical way that we trust in who God is and what God is doing in our world. And he has given us much grace, hasn't he? To make sure we never lose focus of who it is we pray to, Paul says right there in the text, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all and became a bridge for all to come to God. And all doesn't just mean our lost friends and neighbors or those across the globe. All means all, including us as anxious believers. Come and bring your conversation of trust to the table with him. He's paved the bridge He's laid his life down as the intermediary. And now he says, the reason my life is the bridge for you is I want you to come and be with me and put your request before me. And while you do it, express your faith in thanksgiving and in worship as well. We trust him to work by grace. And look how Paul closes this little paragraph on prayer in verse eight. He says, so I want the men to pray in every place lifting up holy hands without anger or dispute. And now Paul talks to men specifically. Not men, by the way, the Greek word here is not mankind. The Greek word here is men, meaning males. Why spotlight men? I think he's calling us to spiritual leadership in the church. Yes, according to verse one, all Christians engage in the priority of active prayer, right? Right? 
But as he ends in verse eight, he's putting his spotlight on us as men and calling us to be especially active in prayer ministry in the church. And notice he even gives us a posture, men, of how we're to pray. He says, I want in every place, and every place means every place you gather. So your community group, your worship service here, maybe in your men's group on Friday morning or Wednesday or wherever you're gonna do your fellowship men's group. He says, in every place, when you gather in prayer, I want you to lift up holy hands without anger or dispute. What's this mean? My early Christian life was shaped by two really good Bible teaching churches. In one of those churches, many people in the congregation in public worship lifted hands in worship. In the other church that I went to right after that, I quickly learned that if you lifted your hand in public worship, you better need to use the restroom, okay? It just was not done. Is that what Paul's talking about here is lifting your hands in worship? Well, I think lifting your hands in worship is a good thing. You know why? I actually think we lift our hands to something in life that we love. We all do. I unashamedly lift my hand when my son hits a winning three-point shot at a game. I have no hesitation of lifting up my arms to my granddaughter or grandson or to my wife. Come on, let's admit it. Which ones of us didn't lift our hands yesterday afternoon? Is there any more wonderfully silly posture that the human person has ever been put in? And we go for it with no shame. And I'll find myself often lifting a hand, particularly one that doesn't reach as high because of cancer surgeries in worship to God's glory. The issue here is lifting your hands in worship is a good thing, but is that what Paul's talking about here? Because I thought the context of our passage was on prayer. Uh, He's now drawing us, particularly men. I think it applies, obviously, to men and women. But men, let's don't miss that this is written as well to us. He is calling us to an outward symbol of an inward heart posture in prayer. That raising holy hands particularly in Paul's day, was a posture of praise to God, but also to surrender to his will. And when we pray, we honor him for being God, not us. And we surrender to his perfect will in all situations. But at the same time, you notice he says tags without dispute, without anger. And it's a warning to us as we lift our hands and worship and surrender to God, may we not have clenched fists out to people who we do life with in this body, that we live with unity and with peace to one another. And all of this reminds me as we close that this posture of prayer is one of complete surrender and peace to God and others. That prayer is not a Christian's hyper-control mechanism where we try to get God to submit to our will. Uh Uh-uh. It's the language of faith in grace, trusting in who he is and what he does. I think that's why Richard Foster says it this way in his book, Prayer, Finding the Heart's True Home. He says, our problem is that we assume prayer is something to master the way we master algebra or auto mechanics. That puts us in the on top position where we are competent and in control. 
But when praying, we come underneath, where we calmly and deliberately surrender control. Have you ever noticed that no matter how long you grow in your Christian life, you have not mastered prayer? If you have, please, I need to meet you because I need the coaching. But God has used some men and women in my life to coach me and help develop me, and some of them have even shared practical tools with me. The four that are on the screen are just my favorite. If you have others that are your favorites, go with the ones God's used in your life. But two books of, of guided prayers and two books about prayer have been especially meaningful. The guided prayers, can we start on the left first? This one on the very left is my go-to. About 12 years ago, a mentor of mine in this church found a hard copy of this little book in a used bookstore, wrote me a nice, night in the a nice note in the cover, and sent it to my house. For the last at least 10 to 12 years, it's been my morning pattern to start my times with the Lord reciting through one of those prayers. It was written by John Bailey, who's a contemporary of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, an English pastor during World War II. And he helped me form a language of faith and grace. And the other one I've used is some that several of you have used. It's called the Valley of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan devotionals, little short prayers that you can read through. I have found, like the Psalms, guided prayers have helped me learn how to speak. By the way, have you noticed that little children learn how to speak the same way? We say to them, say da-da, and they say da-da. And sometimes written prayers like the Psalms or these others can do the same. Two books about prayer. One is written by Greg Pruitt, who's the president of Pioneer Bible Translator, a really good friend here at Fellowship Bible Church. He wrote a book called Extreme Prayer. We took our staff through this several years ago, and I remember one of our staff members saying, when I read this book, it actually encourages me in prayer and actually makes me believe I can pray like this too. It's not a pile on you. It's a come up under you book. And the other one is dangerous for me to recommend because I'm only halfway through it. But it was given to me by a man I trust, and that's Pat Anderson, our worship pastor. And it's called When Prayer Becomes Real. And I'm finding it to be just that. Use these if they help. One of the men in our body who I've respected the way he regularly brings requests for us and for our world before God is Mickey Rapier. And Mickey does that through a really simple prayer template that he fills out regularly and carries around with him. And so we asked Mickey to put it on our website and our resource page, and you can use the QR code to use the same template. The point is this. First of all, pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. And it seems best for us to do so now. And so instead of just ending a message and saying goodbye, we have time in front of us. Let's use it to pray through this passage. I've written some prayer prompt slides that'll be coming up intermittently. Would you take time to begin to work through thanksgiving and worship? Then you'll see some slides on praying for those in authority, then for gospel advancement, and then finally for our church ministry. Let's take time to pray for all types of prayer for all types of people.
Oh God, we worship you for who you are. And we say thank you to now for what you've been doing in our lives. It's our privilege to lift up before you those who are in our governing authorities, and we do so by name. We ask for these leaders that you'd use them as tools in your hands for a life of peace and dignity. We do so because we also want to pray for the gospel's advancement among us and around us. Lord, continue your work through us, among us, around us, to the ends of the earth. But we would tell you that we need your work here among us as well at the same time. So we pray for our church. May we be a people of prayer that set the Lord before us. 
be a prayer unto you. Please, may we be a people of prayer as we follow hard after you. That you would help us to abide and to rest in your presence and to bring all of our needs and our desires before you, acknowledging that you are a good father. We thank you for this. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen. Thank you for worshiping with us this morning, Fellowship. If you'd like prayer, our prayer room is open. We'd love to pray over you. Go in peace this week.